Hello and welcome back to this episode of Who Cares What's the Point? Joining me this week are Kelly McDonald from the Department of Psychology in the University of Houston and Lauren McGrath from the Department of Psychology at the University of Denver, both in the USA. This week we're talking about neuromyths, the idea and misconceptions about brain research and its application to education and learning, which aren't necessarily true. Now, Kelly and Lauren and their colleagues were interested in comparing the prevalence and predictors of neuromyths amongst educators, the general public, and individuals with high neuroscience exposure, maybe through studying at a college or university. And they came up with some very interesting results, particularly on learning styles and dyslexia. This is the first time I've interviewed two people in the same podcast. So have a listen to Kelly and Lauren discuss their results and see what you think. Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll kick us off with, with that question. So um, a few years ago, I was asked to teach a course to um, a group of special educators who are pursuing their master's degree. And um, my job was to teach the brain and learning course, essentially, um, to this these students. And because my own research is in learning disabilities, I end up um, interfacing with education and psychology a lot and, and got interested in the myths that pass both ways from psychology education and from um, education to psychology. So I was, I was speaking to my students about the brain and what they understood about the brain coming into the class. I realized that there were a lot of prominent myths that they were bringing into the class. And that got me thinking, I wonder how broad this problem is. And um, it might be helpful to have some data uh, about the nature of the problem and its extent in order to think about how we might better communicate across disciplines about these particular myths. And in particular, you talk about neuromyths in, in the paper. Yeah. Um, and you talk a little bit about what those are. So maybe um, you can just recap on what you mean by neuromyths for the listeners. Sure, absolutely. Kelly, do you want to take that? Sure, I can take that one. Um, so a neuromyth is um, a misconception about brain research and how it applies to learning and education. Um, and so we'll talk about a few of them with you today. Um, one um, that I can kind of explain to get started is something called the Mozart effect. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a neuromyth that took hold in the early, early 1990s uh, when one research study found um, in college students um, while they were listening to classical music um, that it improved a very specific, they, there was growth on a very specific measure of spatial ability, um, which was generalized um, broadly to intelligence. Um, and this finding was also generalized from the college student sample. It was given to, to young kids. And so um, media just kind of started espousing this idea that um, exposing your young kids to Mozart would improve their IQ. Um, so that's just one example. Sure. And I guess one of the things that I took from the paper was that, um, Lauren, you were talking about your experience of teaching this class, but I guess what you found was perhaps we didn't know too much about the level of knowledge that the general public might have around some of these neuromyths compared to educators or people who had been exposed to some some training or some educational um, exposure around um, neuroscience. 
Absolutely. So um, we had a sense from the previous literature that neuromyths were pretty prevalent in educators, but um, no one had yet asked about comparison groups. And um, so in in the media, at least, teachers were getting a lot of heat for um, believing these neuromyths. And and my sense was that just about everybody believes these myths. so when we were designing our study, we were really careful to think about what our comparison groups should be with the educators. And so we wanted to kind of get a general sample to know what's out there um, amongst the the lay public who don't have expertise in neuroscience or education, but also to ask the kind of interesting question, what if you have a little bit of exposure to neuroscience? Does that help with dispelling these myths? Um, and, and actually, your previous question, uh, I was using the term myths, and our paper used the term neuromyths. Um, so often those two things are overlapping. But um, when we think about myths about the brain, we often use the term neuromyths. When um, one thing that our paper showed was that neuroscientists tend to believe a lot of myths about learning and education. Um, and those are kind of grouped under this category of neuromyths in our paper as a shorthand Um but one critique might be, well, those aren't really neuromyths, they're just myths. Sure. Perhaps one of the things we might come come to later on when we discuss this is how terminology in one field or in the lay public and in another field, perhaps we use the same words, but we don't use the same we don't actually mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. So Okay, we have this situation where you, you're you in this position where you were teaching and you suddenly started thinking, what are these people thinking about and how perhaps does it get in the way or facilitate them in their practice? Um, so how did you go about understanding how prevalent or not these neuromyths were and how did you go about defining them? Yeah, so um, we were we were lucky to have a good running start from um, a group in the Netherlands um, that had already worked with a um, questionnaire that they had developed. So um, Paul Howard Jones was the senior um, senior researcher on that, and uh, there was a lead author, Dr. Decker, who we reached out to and said, "Hey, your neuromyths quiz looks really promising. Could could we use it?" So they were really generous in in sharing that. So we took a look at their quiz as it existed, and they had developed it in collaboration with neuroscientists um, and educators, kind of getting a sense of what was out there and then asking neuroscientists to validate what was true and not true. Um, So we took that as a foundation. From there, um, we sort of whittled back. The science, of course, has has moved ahead in the years since they had published their paper. So we took a few items off that we felt like were a little more ambiguous now. Um, And then we added two items um, that I felt like were important, uh, particularly for our United States study. So one was the Mozart effect that um, Kelly has already uh, talked about. And the other one that I particularly wanted to add was a question about dyslexia and the nature of dyslexia, because the widespread misunderstanding is that it's a problem with reversing letters. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I really wanted my own research is in dyslexia. And so that was one that was really, really important to me to get a better sense of how much misinformation is out there. Mm. And so maybe we could just run down um, what um, what remained um, other than the ones that you've talked about in terms of what that was looking to try to measure. And what were the ones that you, you took off? Yeah. So um, and we should probably say too the quiz that we started with had some myths and some just general information about the brain. Um, so general questions. And one of the surprising findings was, um, 
previously, the previous groups that had used this quiz had indicated that these items are neuromyths and these items are general brain knowledge. And we wanted to be able to validate that decision um, when we looked at the responses. And so the first thing we did was a factor analysis mm. of all of the items. So we wanted to know, is there is there are there items that are clustering together such that if you believe one, you're more likely to believe the other. And what this was this was surprising to us. What popped out was um, a series of, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven items that um, all cluster together. If you believe one, you're more likely to be, believe the others. So we had two about learning styles. We had our question about dyslexia. We had our question about the Mozart effect. Um, we had a myth about um, children being less attentive after consuming sugary snacks, which is always a controversial one. Um, we had a question about people who are left-brained and right-brained and the old standby, we only use 10% of our brain. Yeah. So all those previous that I just mentioned are myths um, from the empirical science, but they are very prominent Yeah. still. Uh, when I've been talking to people about doing this podcast, people were very interested in the learning styles angle on this. And I, I guess I was also interested in the sugary um, ingestion as well and what uh, what impact that has on attention um, uh, and one of the things that I think we'll go on to to describe is how pervasive these are and some of the differences that, that you found so before we get on to that tell me how did you go about measuring this what, what tools did you use how did you go about asking people sure absolutely Kelly do you want to talk a little bit about test my brain and how we did it Sure. Yeah. So we posted, so we, as we just described, we made a few um, alterations to uh, the survey used in the Decker study. Uh, we posted that to a website called testmybrain.org, which is a citizen science model website where you can go on, anybody can access it. And it has a lot of different studies on it that you can take sort of to learn about yourself a little bit and also the understanding is that you're contributing uh, to science as well. So we posted that and we um, advertised the survey through a bunch of uh, professional listservs and through social media. Mm -hmm. And I think at the end of it, um, after you cleaned up all your data, you had around about 3,000 people, 3,000 data sets. Is that right? That's correct. Hmm. Uh, and most of that was... Um, general public, and then you had smaller but substantial groups, I think 500 and 200 and something on educators and mm -hmm. those people who had had um, some kind of neuroscience exposure, some kind of like neuroeducation, some college papers exactly. and things like that. Yeah, okay. And, mm -hmm. and I guess what you're trying to do here is to look at the extent of agreement with these beliefs and seeing what difference there is between these groups and what might help to predict those differences. Would that be a fair enough summary? Yes. Okay. So, Absolutely. what did you find? And I'll, I'll just I'll just jump in and say we also we asked it in a true false statement okay. um, as how you answer it. So um, that means we forced people to make a choice. So if mm. they, they were uncertain, they still had to choose. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something we think about um, in terms of interpreting the results and how we might do it if we were to do it again. Sure. Okay. Well, we, we can come on to that in terms of. How do you think that might have influenced the results? Um, mm -hmm. So walk me through the results. What sort of things did you find? 
So uh, what we found was that training in education and neuroscience um, helps with dispelling some myths, but it's not a cure-all. So individuals with some training in education and neuroscience still endorse what, what we consider to be a pretty high rate of, um, of these myths. So it helps, um, but not as much as we expected, basically, this training in education and neuroscience. The second thing we found was that um, we had some predictors of what made it more likely that you would endorse more myths. So individuals um, who are older tended to endorse more myths, which sort of makes sense that the science marches on. Um, individuals who have a, um, that did not have a graduate degree tended to endorse more myths. Um, and then we found if you have less exposure to neuroscience coursework or you have less exposure to peer-reviewed science, you tended to endorse more myths as well. So those were our predictors. And then the third piece to point out is um, really we had very high rates of two particular myths, and it was those were the two related to dyslexia mm, and learning okay. styles. So tell me, let's dive into those a little bit before we think about you know what those protective predictors might be as well and the implications of those let's talk about learning styles because i think that is actually quite pervasive this idea that people have particular learning styles and if we deliver information in those modalities then people are more likely to learn and and what you're we know that that's um at best contentious, probably not true. But what were you finding um, in your results comparing between those two groups? Because they're quite high rates of endorsement of those those ideas. Yeah, absolutely. So we had uh, one statement on our survey is that individuals learn better when they receive information in their preferred learning style. Um, we saw 93% of the general public public endorsing that myth, 76% uh, of educators and 78% of those uh, with the high exposure to neuroscience coursework. Um, and so definitely a pervasive myth. So this idea that students will demonstrate higher levels of achievement if they're taught in their preferred learning style, um, which, I mean, intuitively makes sense, but um, research that has really tested this. So you take a group of learners and you give them a, a measure to determine their learning style um, and say you differentiate learners into, you take two groups, auditory learners and visual learners. So if this theory holds, then you could give, um, a say, a list of words um, and you can deliver that in an auditory format to one group and in um, a, a list of red words in another group. Um, and your visual learners should do better when they're given the visual input. The auditory learners should perform better when they're given the new information auditorily. Um, and research just hasn't been able to find that. Right. Okay. So, and so what you've discovered here, I think, in the comparison is that very high levels of endorsement for the general public around this this myth around learning styles. And there is a gap. There's a big gap between the educators and general public. Um, it's, uh, what, 17 points. But the educators, mm -hmm. still three quarters of them endorse that myth. So that that, to me, 
I was quite astonished that the educators would still have that and there was a gap. And I know previous research did does show that there's a, a high level of agreement of that. But I guess I'm thinking, what are the implications here in terms of practice? Because you go into the discussion where it looks like perhaps the right thing is being done for the wrong reasons. And I'd like you to help walk us through that. What, what, what is being done and how is it helpful and how is it related to their belief in this neuromyth? Yeah, absolutely. So I think if you took this theory that visual learners learn best visually, auditory learners learn best auditorily, um, then like a an intense application of that theory would be that you divide your students and one group of students is only given auditory input when learning new information. Um, that doesn't happen um, it, and shouldn't happen. Um, so what usually happens is that teachers who are using this theory will administer a survey to determine uh, learning styles in their classroom and they're likely to have all types of learners in that classroom and therefore they may deliver instruction mm -hmm. that is multimodal uh, which we know is good for learning um, but if that's the way that they're justifying it and if they're using resources and class time um, to measure these learning styles then that's what we we mean when we say uh, the right thing for the wrong sure. reason. So they're delivering the information multimodal to try to in their minds uh, deliver this optimally for all the different learning styles that may be present in the room, whereas actually they're getting perhaps increased achievement or engagement because they're doing it multimodally, not necessarily delivering it in different ways because different kids are going to take it on in different ways. Right. Exactly. And we also we also want to emphasize that depending on what content is being taught, a certain type of modality might be preferable. So one example is if you're teaching maps to a class, then that you need to have a visual component to that. So, and if you're, yeah, if you're basing that off of learning styles, then. Yeah, maps would be quite hard if you're just listening to one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> yep. dyslexia then. Okay. So tell, walk me through that. What was the, what was the myth that, and, and what was the rate of um, agreement with that myth? And what do you think the implications are there? Right. So mm. I'll take that one. So the myth goes back to the early 1900s. Um, it was the, the theory was that um, letter reversals while reading um, cut were a cause of dyslexia. And our research has marched forward since the early 1900s. Um, and we have found that not to be the case. So the theory itself was wrong. But it has stayed very persistent. And you still see it. Um, uh, people will will give talks about dyslexia and reverse a letter. That's just the popular conception of um, how people think about what dyslexia is. In reality, it's actually a difficulty um, in a particular oral language skill called phonological awareness. And it that is the skill that allows you to break up words into their component sounds. And as a child, when you're learning to do that process, if that's difficult for you to break up words into their component sounds, learning how letters correspond to those sounds is a very difficult process. So um, that's the early precursor of having difficulties to read is learning letters and letter names and then automatically knowing what letter goes with what sound. And if you're weak at that, you're going to have difficulty decoding words. So that's the actual um, underlying uh, difficulty. There are many different difficulties that go with dyslexia, but this is one of the core pieces um, that we see. Uh, 
And so. Sure. No, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. So um, what what is concerning is that mm, let me look at our data here. So 76 percent of the general public, 59 percent of educators and 50 percent of those that have some neuroscience exposure um, believe that dyslexia is caused by these letter reversals. So that can be really problematic in terms of thinking about a classroom um, and, and how teachers are responding to a child that has uh, a reading difficulty. So I actually have some involvement in our in our clinic here who tests kids with dys dyslexia. And sometimes we hear from parents, um, you know, we talked to the teacher about their reading difficulty, but we all of us, we didn't see letter reversals. And so we didn't think it was dyslexia. And so that delays the treatment um, for the child. And also the underlying misunderstanding is that dyslexia is a visual problem. That's what the misunderstanding is when actually it's a language-based problem. And so if you thought dyslexia is a visual problem, then you should do a visual intervention. And we know that visual interventions don't work for kids with dyslexia. So kids can miss being diagnosed and not get the treatment they need. Um, because of this myth. So this is one of the more per pernicious myths we saw, um, or we thought at least in terms of it's endorsed very highly and it seems to have really tangible impacts in the classroom. Mm, yeah, uh, particularly I think when I was reading this and, and hearing you speak now is around the aspect of screening and early intervention um, and making sure that it's identified early. And, that, and I guess the issue is, is that if, if both the parents and the educators are not seeing this problem for what it really is, then the screening doesn't happen and then the early intervention doesn't happen too. Right. One of the things that is, um, I'm curious about was the difference or overlap between those people you class as educators and those people who have had exposure to neuroscience. Perhaps mm -hmm. you can talk a little bit about um, the difference and overlap perhaps between those two groups. Yeah, um, so I can talk about that a little bit. Uh, we had 53 individuals in our educated group who also endorsed completing many neuroscience courses, which was the uh, criterion for being in the high neuroscience group. Um, and we made the decision to include those 53 people in the educator group instead of the high neuroscience group. Um, so we prioritized that educator status in order to kind of understand the full range of training that um, teachers come in with. Okay. And so you found that there was a bit of a difference between those two groups, but it didn't seem particularly huge in terms of effect size. Is that right? And so what do you think the implications are, uh, of that are? I mean, I guess it's hard to it's hard to understand what people have been exposed to, I guess, in their neuroscience course. They, yes, they've done a course, but who knows what they had in that course or whether they completed it even. Yeah, so we this was one of our unexpected findings from this work. Uh, we we hypothesized that completing many neuroscience courses uh, would help in dispelling some of these myths in our sample. Um, however, we found a relatively high rate of endorsement in the high neuroscience group. So on average, 46% of the myths uh, were endorsed by those with high exposure to neuroscience. Um, this prompted us to run uh, to look more closely and run a few more analyses on that group because um, we kind of doubted, you know, maybe um, the quality of their neuroscience courses weren't very high or we were just wondering what was going on with that finding. Um, but we found that 
um, the highest, we looked at the highest uh, degree, everyone in the high neuroscience group completed, um, and 88% of those individuals completed their highest degree in science, social science, or medicine, or health-related degree. Um, so we took that to mean that their courses were likely rigorous, although um, one weakness, of course, of the study is that we don't have additional information for what those courses entailed. Sure. Did anything surprise you uh, from the remaining neuromyths that you had, the five that we haven't quite talked about yet? Um, you know, things like um, left brain and right brain and um, the fact that <laughs> the fact the idea that we use only 10 percent of our brain. Um, was there anything that was surprising that, that came out of that in terms of the differences between the public educators and neuroscience exposure group? Not particularly. I think, well, one of our hypotheses was uh, about the left brain, right brain learners, because the previous research that has looked at this in educators anyway, um, has found that to be a quite uh, pervasive mm. one. So that was not surprising. Because um, it's about one in two still believe that for the educators. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. So I was sort of carry on. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, I, I was happy to see the, the we only use 10% of our brain myth um, has been around for a while. And we're seeing about one in three for the general public and the educators. Um, but only 14% of those mm. saying they have high neuroscience exposure. So that's almost a nice validation um, it, where you see the neuroscience training pulling apart from the educator training a little bit. Um, we'd expect the neuroscientists to have that one down. Um Whereas it's still, you know, it's hanging around there in our culture. But I've noticed um, places like the New York Times wrote um, an article about the this particular neuromyth when there was a there was a movie that came out a couple summers ago, um, and I forget it now. But Scarlett Johansson was in it, and it, it essentially was had a piece of this myth. And so I've seen it pretty prominently in media um, organizations dispelling this particular mm. one. So I'm encouraged that you can get down to this 36%, you know, as opposed to these other ones where we're seeing three out of four or more. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit here, but I'm just wondering, do you think this is a science communication problem? This idea of overgeneralizing perhaps from a very specific finding and then these things becoming embedded in culture as myths and truisms. Where do you think these kind of ideas, these cultural memes come from and how do we go about challenging them? Yeah. And I think each one of these has a different etiology. So it gets a little tricky. So we know the dyslexia one comes from an old theory. Um, but it sticks around because I think if you don't know much about dyslexia, it's easy to assume it's a visual problem. And so this, um, it's a, it's an easy kind of explanation. So, um, a lot of these, I think, come from a misunderstanding about complexity mm. of the brain and learning. So if you think there's only one thing, if it, you know, the, that the way, the one cause of dyslexia is reversing letters or the one cause, um, the one good way to teach is via learning styles. Um, I, I think that sort of thinking can leave you susceptible to lots of these different mm. myths. Um, so that's one thing that we thought about. Why would someone believe all of these at the same time? Yeah. Um, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that they all get taught or communicated in, in similar forums. Um, 
So for instance, the visual, the learning styles in the left brain and right brain, those two kind of go together because they're all trying to understand the learning differences that we all see in children. Um, it's just that these aren't the explanations from science that can help us understand those differences. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think you you definitely um, resonated with my ideas around that um, simplification and looking for the one pathway that's going to make a difference. Um, and there's a desire for simplification and, and finding solutions to problems that are complex and, and our brains are complex and our social environment is, in, is complex as well that we live in. So if I can ask you, why should we care about this research? What what is the what is the point? What what do we what do we take from this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, broadly, I think these findings are relevant for education, neuroscience, and psychology. Um, I think for educators specifically, um, people in the neuroscience field, and trying to bridge those two fields. Um, and as well as people who are training to go into these fields. So trainee teachers, um, I think, is one group that we need to target in um, kind of dispelling these myths. And um, any stakeholders who are responsible for um, training the next generation of teachers and neuroscientists. I think one one thing that I think about, uh, why should we care um, and how, how, what are the implications of this work? One thing that pops out to me is that these myths need to be actively countered. So if you just proceed through your education and neuroscience training, if these aren't actively discussed, you keep them. You, even though you're learning more about the brain and more about learning, these myths are so persistent that they, they stick with you. So we actually need a sort of active teaching of these myths. Um, we can't assume that just more training in education and neuroscience is going to passively get rid of them. Mm, so they need to be explicitly named and challenged rather than implicitly thinking that more knowledge means that people will join the dots and go, oh, okay, this thing's not true then. Yes, exactly. Because these are, I think these are in the water, basically, of our culture now. They're, they're, they're so far around us that you think they're true. And, and you don't even um, think to challenge them, given the new knowledge that you're, um, that you're gaining in your courses. No, you're right. I mean, I guess if you just look in a classroom, if, if, the, if the idea of learning styles has taken root, then it becomes the frame through which everything is delivered without you actually explicitly being aware of this is what is happening. Yeah, and I think um, going off of that, just thinking about resource allocation, um, teachers and schools have limited time and resources. Um, If we're using strategies uh, that are based off of neuromyths rather than strategies that are based in solid scientific evidence, then we are not making smart use of that limited time and resource. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you, is your sense that this is uh, something that's going to take time in terms of culturally moving um, from the position that we're in now until we're in a place where um, some of this knowledge gets challenged? This is like a generational shift that needs to happen. I, I do think that's the case. So it's, it's challenging to, to um, reach professionals that are already in practice in a lot of ways. And this is the case across all kinds of, um, for educators and my field of psychology. Um, 
So we could do all the professional development, but we're not going to get to every school, right? Uh, there's there's always going to be places, niches where we sort of can't reach. Um, so I do I do feel like that's a challenge. Um, and one way that you can start to make change is is through current schools of education. If they're thinking about their curricula, that's going to shape a new generation of teachers who are then going to go out to those schools and can communicate with folks that are already uh, in practice there. So that's one that's one kind of hope is that you'll have some generational change. Um, and of course, science is changing as well. So um, we'll have more myths, I expect, that will pop up um, that. So it's a it's a game of whack-a-mole a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, it always is. Um, so what's next for you? Um, how, how is this research line moving forward for you? Absolutely. So I think thinking about sort of what our findings mean moving forward, um, I think the implications are most urgent for educators because um, of those reasons I just talked about. So limited time and resources and how uh, we're choosing what strategies we're using in the classroom. Um, there's definitely a shift in education towards evidence-based practices. And so dispelling neuromyths will allow teachers and schools to use um, methods that are evidence-based. And so think thinking along those lines, uh, we have considered next steps. Um, and we think that a training module is something that could be developed and this could be online and it could be kind of bringing together a lot of different resources, some of which are already available online to kind of try to correct some of these myths among current educators. Um, but we are aware that an online approach like that may be a little more challenging for some of those controversial myths like uh, learning styles. So... Yeah, and I'm I'm thinking a lot about um, my own work in dyslexia and how we. Um, I'm almost sort of narrowing down to that one particular myth and how you go forward um, with that in terms of getting good information out to the community. So I'm aware that our collaborator, one of the co-authors on um, this study, Alita Anderson, um, she's at American University. And um, she is working on just what Kelly was suggesting, so an online training module around this dyslexia myth in particular. And um, they have some, some, some cool resources there in, in terms of um, game design. So they have a master's in game design uh, program. And those are folks that are great at making your online training fun and engaging. Uh, so they're starting to think about how we could make something available um, to teachers via online um, mechanisms to kind of provide a little professional development about dyslexia and hopefully spark an interest for folks to go find out more information. Um, we're also thinking about where would you host such a thing such that people would be able to find it and um, disseminate it. So we're, we're kind of starting down the road of what, what would make the most sense efficiency wise to dispel, dispel some of the, these myths. So um, the learning styles myth is is really controversial, and we know that um, teachers listening to this might think these researchers don't understand. I see differences in learning all the time amongst my students, and we validate that. We see those differences too. Um, what we're concerned with is how to classify those differences most accurately. Um, and what we see from the research is that splitting kids into visual, auditory, and kinesthetic learning isn't going to predict their, um, their learning performance, as well as other things that we know do predict learning performance. 
Um, so some of those things are background knowledge about the topic, um, interest and motivation in the topic. All of those are going to predict actual learning more than the learning styles theory itself. And so um, we are not saying that children should be treated the same. We're not saying that children are the same. Um, what we're saying is that this particular way of categorizing children um, doesn't seem to be uh, effective from the science. Thanks for joining me on this week's episode of Who Cares What's the Point? Um, you may not know, but I've started a Patreon website where you can join the exclusive community who support me in the production of this podcast. Now, you can listen for free, of course, but it does take me a bit of time and effort and cost to put it up on the net. So if you can help out in any way by subscribing for as little as $1 a month, that would be really, really helpful. And please, don't forget, it's on iTunes, it's on any other podcast app you like. Please listen, share, review, rate. It all helps promote the profile of the podcast. Thank you for listening. Find me on patreon.com slash sabjohal. And don't forget. Who cares? What's the point?